Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Fivoli, Staff Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. Our topic today is one that is back in the news after an absence of several years, namely inflation. We'll be discussing where inflation has been and where it might be going, and what the implications are for actuaries working in the pension area. So joining us for this conversation today are CIA member Francois Brudon, who's managing partner with Sustainable Market Strategies and Nordis Capital, and also we have Sohini Chowdhury, a senior economist with Moody's Analytics. Thank you both for joining us today. Nice to be Thanks, here, Chris. Chris. Thank you. So let's start just by outlining what we mean by inflation and maybe what are some of the causes of it. So inflation is the annual change in prices for a basket of goods and services. It's expressed in percentages. And you can think that since it's a measure of how expensive things have become, it's also a measure of people's purchasing power or the value of money. So if the prices of goods have doubled over the year, it means that people's purchasing power has halved. So the same money buys you half goods. In terms of what are the causes, you might have to go back to your Econ 101 test books where the price of a good is determined by demand and supply. And the level where price settles, which is what we call equilibrium price, is where demand equals supply. So very simply, there is an increase in price from equilibrium levels if either there is excess demand, so demand increases while supply stays the same, or supply decreases while demand stays the same. The first one is called demand pull inflation, basically demand-driven inflation. A very good example of this is, uh, you know, we can relate to how prospective buyers are overbidding the prices of homes for sale in the market. So I know a colleague of mine in San Francisco last month is looking for a house and he went to check a home and turns out that the home eventually sold for a million US dollars above the listed price. So I don't even know what the listed price was, but this is a case of more buyers, you know, fighting over the same goods and services. So clearly that pushes up prices. That is demand driven. The second one is the other one, which is cost push inflation. So due to whatever reason, there are supply constraints. Supply gets constrained. And so you have the same number of people but fewer goods going around. So the inflation that we are seeing today, like Chris mentioned, after many, many years, at least in a developed country like US and Canada, is has elements of both. So it's partly driven by demand, excess demand, partly by less supply. So when the world emerged from the COVID-driven lockdown, people had all this extra savings and pent up demand. They wanted to buy stuff and, you know, cars and all of these. And on the other hand, supply chains, as we have heard about the the semiconductor chips and all, they were all scrambled because either there was labor shortage or shipping container shortages or factory workers having to quarantine because of China's zero tolerance policy and all of that. And now, of course, the recent surge in energy prices from all the geopolitical events is adding to that inflation. So it's being caused by both demand on one hand and supply too. Okay, I just want to do a little detour here and talk about the concept of hyperinflation. Uh, We've heard about it, but maybe we don't understand what causes. So maybe if you could tell us a bit about uh, what could lead to a hyperinflation situation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, very scary scenario. So 
Hyperinflation is basically, as the name suggests, high inflation, like very, very high inflation, which is usually defined as month over month price increase of 50% or more. So basically something which costs $100 today will cost $150 or more next month. So your purchasing power effectively gets slashed by a third every month. So then I think the question is, well, how do we end up in a situation like this? And there have been periods in history. So the root cause is poorly managed monetary policy in response to basic structural flaws in the economy. So think of a weak economy and which has rampant corruption and overspending. So the government basically spending and buying more than it can afford. It results in a huge, ever-increasing national debt. Now, usually when you have national debt, to finance that debt or the budget deficit, you impose taxes on people. Now, that is usually politically, you know, very hard to do for governments. They don't like to, you know, impose higher taxes. The other thing you can do is borrow from international markets, like get a loan. There also you run into problems because given the condition in your country, you can't get funds at a cheap enough rate. So when those two avenues are closed, you resort to something, doing something domestically, which the government thinks is a good short-term option and which is basically overprinting your own currency. So think about having a printing press at home. So you want to buy a car, you don't have adequate funds, well, if you had a printing press and you can just churn out US or Canadian dollars, churn out $50,000, go pick up a brand new car. Tomorrow you want something else, churn the printing press again. That's exactly what the governments of these weaker countries have done in the past. Now, although it sounds like, wow, that's great. The problem is what that results in is too much money floating around the economy. So basically, if you have too much of anything, then that thing becomes less valuable. There is no value. And that's exactly what happens. So this is sort of like a stealth tax or a hidden tax on people. So whatever money you have tomorrow is has less value because now there is so much money going around. So there are quite a few examples in history. The most famous one is Zimbabwe's in 2008-2009 period where in November of 2009, the annual inflation, so inflation over 365 days, was 79.6 billion percent. I know hard to grasp your head around that number, but that is equivalent to a daily inflation rate of 98%, which is almost close to 100, which in more common language means that prices in this country, Zimbabwe, nearly doubled every day. So a loaf of bread, which costs $5 today, Zimbabwean dollars, will cost 10 tomorrow and 20 the next day. And so the currency, so the paper money that you hold is getting halved in value every day. Now, clearly this is an unsustainable situation. So they had to ditch their own currency and then adopted the US dollar. So Essentially, that, that is what is going on. It's overprinting to accommodate your growing budget deficit because you have no other way to fill that gap. 
Now, for those of us old enough to remember, inflation was a major concern back in the 1970s and 1980s, but was less so after that. So I was just curious if you could explain what was behind those high inflation rates that we saw 40, 50 years ago, and what's happened in the past couple of decades to make it less of a concern until now. So in the 70s and 80s, inflation was mainly driven by cost push, which is the supply and energy prices. So we had the OPEC embargo in the 1970s. So crude oil prices shot through the roof and every country which was a major oil importer suffered the consequences. So they not only saw soaring inflation, and this is including the United States, of course, but also high unemployment rate. Because when gasoline prices at the pump increase, households basically have less disposable income to spend on other things. So this period was actually a period of stagflation, stagnation combined with inflation. So you not only have soaring prices, you also have slow growth and unemployment rate. One of the reasons why this is less of a concern now, at least the energy-driven inflation, inflation from energy shocks, is because like developed countries have become less reliant on energy now, like the U.S. has its own domestic means. And also, I think there has been better management, better policies to you know, counter inflation. But it's not that inflation has completely gone away. Emerging countries like Turkey, Argentina, Venezuela, maybe not hyperinflation, but very, very high inflation. Francois, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, well, uh, if we look at the last 40, 50 years, like inflation was on a generalized downtrend from the 1980s to 2020. Uh, in the early 80s, we had double-digit inflation, but ever since I started working in the mid-90s, inflation has been generally below expectations. And this has made people very confident that inflation is never going to come back because most people think linearly and they're influenced by what they've seen recently. So as an example, since 2000, in the United States, growth and inflation have essentially been simultaneously between 0 and 4% every year, except for 2007, where we had a little bit more than 4% than inflation, 2008 and 2020, where we had decent-sized recession, and now 2021, where we've had higher growth and inflation. So in more than 80% of the cases, we've been between 0 and 4% on inflation, 0 and 4% on growth, and this is very stable. And this period was characterized by a quest for efficiency. So global globalization that brought like excess labor, just-in-time inventories, free movement of goods were the main reason for stability. And China joining the WTO in 2000 brought a bunch of new cheap labor in the system. And this efficiency quest was a source of big profits. But now globalization has probably peaked. There's limits to the, the extent to which globalization is likely going to continue. You see countries fighting. Uh, and when I was in, at university and I was taught in demographic classes that the baby boomers are going to retire at some point, I knew that we would have some labor shortages, but I completely forgot about it. I put it in the back of my mind because I had been like every year didn't matter. Inflation was not coming back. But now the baby boomers are retiring and we're having labor shortages. And I think this is something that's going to continue. So the factors that led to a relatively stable economy over the last 20 years are changing. And for the future, I think there are greater uncertainty. And as Soini was mentioning, 
how the governments and the central banks react are going to be determinant in order to see what we're going to have in the future. And their reaction during the latest increase in inflation for the central bank, they are behind the curve. And I think the main reason was that we've been in stability or low inflation for the past 40 years. So if you haven't seen it, it's very tough to, to see it when it's uh, unless you see it for a long period. Now, I certainly won't hold you to this, but I was wondering if you both were willing to provide a high level forecast on what you could see happening with inflation in both the short term and the long term. So the short term outlook depends on you know how soon you think the supply side issues that we thought are getting better but now you know with, with again covid rearing its ugly head in china and and all are going to correct themselves so so that is one aspect of it and also like francois mentioned how quickly and effectively central banks will jump in and to, to control the situation they have been lagging a bit the long term outlook is kind of more important because it depends on whether you believe that the recent episodes that we've had of a 30-year high inflation in the United States have pushed up people's expectations about future inflation. So this idea about inflation expectations, that is critical because that generates a self-fulfilling prophecy for actual inflation to be high. So the way this works is that if people start to believe that the inflation we are seeing now or have been seeing in the past couple of months are not temporary, are not like tiny blips, but are actually are going to last for the medium term, then they start demanding higher wages. So like if I went looking for a new job, I would probably look for like higher wages. And then employers or factory owners will have to raise prices to account for the higher labor costs. So that results in this dangerous wage price spiral that we call, and it's very hard to break for policymakers. So it's like expectations about higher inflation in the future gets entrenched in people's mind. And if that happens, we are seeing some signs of it, and, and the central banks are also you know, looking, following this data and anecdotal surveys that we have very you know, carefully. But then that would mean that long-term inflation, so for the United States, the Federal Reserve has a 2% target of inflation. We might end up higher than that if expectations have moved. For my sake, I think uh, the risks are, are lying more on the upside. So for 2022, that's relatively short term, uh, we work with scenarios. So our main scenario is an inflationary growth scenario where you're going to get inflation in the 5-6 area and the growth around 4%. Uh, our second scenario is a stagflation environment where maybe 2% growth, and something like 6% inflation. And then we have a 15% probability on the 3% growth, 3% inflation, and a 15% probability on a recession where you have about 2% inflate or like 2% inflation and zero growth. So uh, we think that the risks for 2022 are higher inflation. And similar thing for 2023, we expect inflationary growth and stagflation to be, again, the most likely scenario. In both cases, we have 65, 70% probability that inflation is going to be over 4% for the next two years. And I think the long-term structural factors and the fact that there's a 
uh, it's easier to uh, kind of get away from the high debt level in the economy with inflation. It hurts a little bit less than going through default. So I think the tendency after having 40 years with very low and with very like falling and low inflation, I think the the tendency will be for central banks and government to kind of let it rip a little bit. They they said a couple of years ago in the U.S. that they wanted to run the economy hot. Well, the economy is really hot right now, and inflation is really hot, and rates are still at close to zero, even though they they're going to increase them. They're really behind the curve, and I think that it's going to – I don't believe they have the metal for now to go get in front of that curve. They're going to probably be behind the curve uh, for, for a while uh, from a, a short-term perspective, but also I think from a longer-term perspective, I would expect that we will have an average of inflation between 3 and 3.5 three and over the next 10 years. Okay, so when the time comes to start managing or controlling inflation, what are some of the policy responses that governments can think about? Yeah, so the most common, like Francois was mentioning, is by tightening money supply. So tightening money in the hands of people that is roaming around, and that is by interest rate rises. And so central banks across the world are starting to raise rates. Now, I think one of the reasons, not I think, I mean, definitely one of the reasons why central banks, including the Federal Reserve, haven't like quickly increased interest rates, seeing this inflation data is the risk of stagflation. So if you tighten rates too soon or too much, because, you know, like we just mentioned that people have are not used to higher interest rates and then suddenly market sees like a two consecutive 50 basis point increase in rates that might you know backfire and that is what and that if it backfires then that will put the economy back into a recession so we just got out of one we just got out of this covid recession and because of covid obviously rates all over the world were slashed to to this accommodative monetary policy to support the economy as much as possible. And now you have this overheating, which people are not quite sure, is it purely a supply side story? In which case, rising interest rates will not do really much because if it's like just supply being stuck somewhere in China, or is it also, it is definitely, like I said, it has elements of the demand side, but how much is it demand versus supply? The risk is if you tighten rates too much, too fast, then you are staring at, so the 10%, I think, Francois, you mentioned the likelihood of a stagflation will be even more. That is a definite risk. That is one of the reasons. So I would not want to be uh, in the Fed chair's place right now because they, they have to like, you know, Whatever they do, there'll be people yelling at them. So I guess it's a catch-22 situation for them. But yeah, a rate increase, that's the most common policy measure. Okay, well, let's wrap up by taking a closer look at the implications for pension actuaries. So what are some of the things that uh, they should be paying attention to as we deal with potentially higher inflation? Yeah, like, like Soini talked to uh, about the central bankers not being in a very fun job. I think pension actuaries, when they meet with their clients, are probably not going to be in a, in a very fun job, even though the past couple of years we had some very good returns. So maybe the, the pension uh, surplus uh, provide a cushion so that they won't be shouted at too much. But depending on how you see uh, inflation going forward, your assumptions about the discount rate, 
wage increases and asset performance will be different. I'll give you my own opinion as to how I think it will evolve. So I think it's probably going to be on the higher side, let's say three, three and a half percent long-term inflation. If you are in the camp of the 2% inflation for the long run, uh, then you will have lower level of, of assumptions. But if we start with the, the discount rate, I think we're in a period of financial repression where central banks will keep rates artificially low just to deal with the high level of debt. Used to be when I started that the normal 10-year rate was 2%, 2% plus 2% inflation. You had a 4% rate in normal times. In this case, I think that the, the nominal rates will just track inflation. So if we have a three, three and a half percent inflation level, I think your your long-term discount rate will be in a three, three and a half, maybe four percent. So it won't help you as much as it should, but your inflation expectation for salaries, uh, what I talked about on the uh, the fact that there's a labor shortage and it's likely to, to continue as globalization reduces and the baby boomers are retiring, that one may actually be higher than the, the, the normal level of inflation. So it's probably going to be good for society that the wages take a bigger pie of the, uh, of the GDP, but it's not going to be fun for pension calculation. And in asset land, We've been in a period where there was a bit too much money chasing too few goods. So central banks were printing money because they couldn't get inflation to go up and didn't have any inflation consequences. Retirement funds were accumulating more than they were paying out. And we see now that some of them are changing as people are getting older. And uh, so that's going to be probably less flow moving into assets. Sovereign wealth funds were growing because of globalization. Now, sovereign wealth funds, like in Russia, for example, they don't even have access to to their money. So I think this will change. Climate change will probably require a changing industrial structure or at least a hardening of infrastructure if we're going to be dealing with the side effects. And both require a lot of investment. We've been in a period where there was a lot of money, a lot of uh, savings, looking for few investments, and that put the prices of assets on the way up and risk premiums shrunk. But now I think you're going to be moving into the opposite where there's going to be less money. Like if you're a baby boomer, you're going to collect your money and you're going to be retiring. And there's a lot of need for infrastructure. Like climate change is a a topic that is really close to to my heart. Uh, And another aspect, uh, we've been lucky to have the peace dividends since the fall of the Berlin Wall. But now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this thing is probably gone. So the asset party of uh, making 10% a year for equities while the rates are at two is probably over. Should expect single digits over the, the reasonable uh, reasonable period. And many people have uh, moved into private assets thinking that, okay, well, this is this is where the action is. These guys are much smarter than, than everybody else, but they've benefited from the fall on the discount rate. And the lower volatility that they exhibit sometimes is just a reflection of the fact that they're not priced every day and they're priced to model, not priced to, priced to market. So there's not a lot of spots where you can hide. The beauty is the pension levels, like they're now fully funded for most of them and rates are moving a little bit higher. So you can reduce your risk 
uh, and not be exposed. Like running and and being happy about asset prices always moving up is probably not the the most likely situation. So it's going to be an interesting dynamic for pension actuaries. But in the long run, I'd say probably the wage growth need to be moved up a little bit, discount rates slightly higher, and asset returns slightly lower, which is kind of the opposite of what everybody has been doing for the past 20, 30 years, ever since I got out of university. Okay, well, it sounds like we certainly have some interesting times ahead. So I'd like to thank both of you for coming and speaking to us today. Thank Thank you, Chris. We now have over 100 episodes in our podcast series from the past three years, so we certainly encourage you to subscribe, and you can do so through whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. And we would like to hear from you, so if you have any suggestions or episode ideas, please send them along to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. And we're always looking for content for our Seeing Beyond Risk blogs. So if you have some ideas you would like to share, you can reach us at seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. Until next time, I'm Chris Riboli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk.